there. What a great time of worship. And uh, I always, always, always look forward to baptism weekends, to hearing these uh, stories of how God is at work in people's lives. And uh, I hope it's a, an encouragement to you to press on for the Lord. And it's a reminder, I hope, to all of us why we exist as a church. We exist to make disciples. And part of making disciples is baptizing them in the name of Jesus. And so we've done that this weekend. That is why we're here. And it fires me up. It fires me up to worship. It fires me up to look into God's word. And that's what we're going to do now together. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, William Franklin Graham Jr., better known to most of us as Billy, was laid to rest this past Friday at the age of 99 next to his wife, Ruth, on the grounds of the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte. Billy had um, very modest beginnings as a son of a dairy farmer in rural North Carolina. But he, of course, went on to become an internationally known and respected Christian leader and evangelist. And it would take us more time than we have before us to recount all of his achievements, but I wanted to just uh, remind us of several as we get started this morning. Uh, these are just a few of the things that he accomplished over, get this, more than seven decades of ministry. He preached, Billy preached live, get this, to nearly 215 million people in more than 185 countries. His estimated lifetime audience, including radio and television broadcasts, is more than 2 billion people. Billion. More than 3.2 million people responded at his crusades to the invitation to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they had a policy of reporting low, all right, not to inflate the numbers. He wrote more than uh, 30 books, some of which went on to become bestsellers. He was a spiritual advisor and counselor to all 12 U.S. presidents, from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. Strengthen the, the global church and the cause of world evangelization through the, the creation of the Lausanne movement, which continues to this day. He launched uh, the popular magazine Christianity Today. He was an early advocate in the controversial move toward racial desegregation. And Billy received the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor, the highest civilian award bestowed by the United States of America. And he finished in the top 10 of Gallup's list of most admired men, annual list, 60 times. Perhaps even more amazingly, Billy is remembered not just as a world-changing hero of faith, but also as a humble preacher, a man whose integrity and whose purity continue to set the standard for every Christian leader today. Now clearly, Billy wasn't without his shortcomings. He wasn't perfect. None of us are. But his legacy will live on. He will leave a lasting impact for decades, for generations, dare I even say it, centuries to come. And I say all of that this morning to say this. Who among us doesn't want their life to count in some significant way? Who doesn't want to make a difference for Christ? Now, granted, Probably not to the extent of Billy Graham. There is just one Billy. He's kind of in a category to himself. And for most people in this room, probably not in a full-time vocational ministry, pastoral kind of way. And that's all perfectly fine. God isn't asking any of us to be anything other than what he wants us to be. But even still, we can make and we are called to make a lasting impact for the Lord. 
I want to do that with my life. I trust you want to do that with your life. I think that's at least part of the reason you're here this morning. I mean, after all, who really wants to just coast through life? Who wants to allow the opportunities to make a difference for Christ just to kind of slip through their fingers? God has so, so, so much more in mind for all of us. So I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. If you're not already there, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Just one little verse to unpack. We will touch on a number of others along the way. One verse, if you're new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament, kind of the back half. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, all right? I hope you can find that. Even as you're turning, before we dive into God's word together, I want to ask us just to bow our heads and pray and ask that he would uh, speak through me and speak to each of our hearts and really meet with us in this time. So let's bow our heads and pray and talk to him about that. Father God, you have told us that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, it shows us the way to go. It shows us uh, where you are calling us, where you want us to go with our lives and our in our actions, in our behaviors. And Father, I just pray that you would shine your light on us this morning as we come to your word again. Would you do again in us what you have done before, which is breathe new life into us, that you would open our eyes, you take the scales off so that we can see you for who you are, that we can understand your call upon our lives and that you would strengthen us to live that out. So God, would you do that? Would you Move by your spirit through your inspired word. We thank you that we have it in our hands like this where we can study it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it, and live it out. So God, would that be so this morning again? We pray it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us uh, this morning, we're, uh, as Jordan mentioned at the start, we're in this series called The Bible's Greatest Hits. And uh, we've been looking each week uh, a different pastor from our staff or some special guest preachers. We've been looking at uh, either a single verse or a very short passage from God's word that has been very meaningful to us. It's one of our favorites. And this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, I hope you're there or getting there. This has been one of my faves for quite some time. And um, I honestly can't recall exactly when it first intersected my life. I don't have a really cool story to tell you about that, about like this time that, you know, some preacher preached some message or God just like, you know, lit up the skies. But I love how clear and how compelling this verse is. I love how it encourages and it exhorts us to pursue a new level of commitment in our walk with the Lord. So you ready for this? All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I'm gonna read it to us and then we'll kind of dive in. Paul says this, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So let's allow this verse to answer this very important question. How can I make a lasting impact in what I do for the Lord? How can I make a lasting, enduring impact? And here's the first principle I see. It's that I must stay grounded in the gospel. If I want to make a lasting impact, I need to stay grounded in the gospel. And I see that in the first few words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. And I want us to kind of pull that apart 
bit by bit, and we're going to actually go in reverse order. So let's start with the word steadfast. That word has the idea of being solid, of being settled, of being secure. It has the idea of a fixed purpose of heart, an unshakable confidence, an unyielding conviction. It's the same word that Paul used in another one of his letters, Colossians 1 verse 23, when he called the believers there to to continue in the faith, to be stable and steadfast, not shifting. You could almost say it's it's like a holy tenaciousness. It's like a dog on a bone. Do you get the picture? That's what steadfast is. And this instruction to be steadfast, who's it coming to? Who's it sent to? Well, it's, it's coming to my beloved brothers. And by the way, that's not a gender-specific term. He's not leaving out the ladies. This is my beloved friends, my beloved brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a term of endearment that's used for those who you care about very deeply. And it, and it shows that Paul has great tenderness and great affection for his audience, these Corinthian believers. In fact, this this word beloved is also used multiple times in the New Testament when God the Father is speaking of his son. Do you remember actually Jesus' baptism? We just celebrated baptism. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized uh, by uh, John? And do you remember the voice from heaven? What did it say? It said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the same word here, beloved. And so um, that should give you a sense of the preciousness of, of this word, and, and we're included in this audience as well. We're part of the beloved brothers. The, the, the term speaks to those who have been brought together because of their salvation, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was really rooted on. It wasn't just because they had some things in common. What they had in common was the fact that they were saved by Jesus. That's what they shared. That's what made them brothers and sisters in God's family. And we're part of that too. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God. You're part of the beloved brothers and sisters. And so this message is for us just as much as it was for them. And so what are the beloved brothers and sisters supposed to be steadfast about? Well, for that, we need to think about the word therefore. And... um, I paid a lot of money to go to Bible college and seminary, and I'm just going to give you like a free little lesson right now, okay? One of the things we learned early on in our study of the Bible is that whenever you come to the word therefore, you need to really be very clear on what it's there for, all right? And what it's there for is it's tying what comes before with what comes after. It's a connecting word. It's saying, because of this, now, then, that, or because of this, consequently, that. And so, with that in mind, we need to consider for a moment the kind of the greater context of this letter, this letter to the church in Corinth, and talk a little bit about the city. I don't know if you know much about the city, the ancient city of Corinth, but it was a a thriving city in ancient Greece. And one of the main features of this city, Corinth, that made it so thriving, so popular, was its ports. It had multiple ports. And for sure, that allowed for a lot, a lot, a lot of commerce. But one of the other things it allowed for was um, ease of access of travel. And so people would literally come from all over the Mediterranean world to Corinth. And they would come, they'd make their weekend visit, and they came to lose their minds in all sorts of sinful behavior. In fact, scholars talk about Corinth 
as the ancient Las Vegas. You know, like what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And there was even a word that people would use back then, and this wasn't just for people in Corinth, but when they would say like, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? And they would say like, I want to go Corinthianize. And the idea meant I want to go and just lose myself in all kinds of debauchery. That's what the word actually meant. Do you get any picture of this city? Now just imagine this upstart church in that environment. Just trying their very best in the midst of all of these cultural pressures to live out the teachings of Jesus faithfully. And when you walk through this letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, when you walk through it, you see that they were really dealing with some very significant issues. I don't know when the last time you read the book of 1 Corinthians is, but I mean, on every page, in every paragraph, there are problems. I mean, they were talking about division uh, over leaders. I like this guy. No, I like this guy. And um, questions about suing one another as believers and about um, whether they should offer food uh, that had, eat food that had been offered to idols and all kinds of rampant sexual immorality and they had questions about marriage and singleness and they were misusing the Lord's table and they were all confused about spiritual gifts and they had crazy disorderly worship services and I mean that's just like a quick synopsis. So I, I hope you get the picture that this church was a mess. And they were fixated on what was wrong. They were fixated on the wrong things. And so, beginning in chapter 15, Paul takes them back to the basics. He says, like, guys, we need to go back to kindergarten here. You've forgotten. This is what he says. He says, you have forgotten about the gospel. I was there. I preached it to you. You have forgotten it. You, you've forgotten the good news of Jesus about who he is and what he has done. You've You've forgotten that he came, he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was risen on the third day. You've forgotten that we can find forgiveness and freedom in him. You've forgotten that we can look forward to our own bodies being resurrected because Jesus Christ is the first fruit. He did it himself first. That's our hope for the days to come. You've forgotten that Jesus is coming back again one day to receive us unto himself. Guys, you have forgotten what's of first importance. You have forgotten the glorious gospel. That's chapter 15. And look at his words there, just if your Bible's open, the end of chapter 15, beginning at verse 54. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like was true of the Corinthians, it's so easy for us to slip back into old patterns, old ways of thinking, old ways of living that are not rooted in the realities of the gospel. And that will prevent us from having a lasting impact in what we do for the Lord. And so in light of all of that, Paul says, be steadfast. I, I want you to stay grounded in the gospel. This is your foundation. This is the sure thing. Don't move away from what matters most. Now you may be wondering, you seem to be making a lot of the gospel here, Dan. Like really, what difference does the gospel make in my activity for the Lord? 
you know, as I'm seeking to honor him in my words and my deeds, what, like, what are the personal implications that the gospel has on me? And um, I just jotted down three quick points. You may want to note these as well. First is that staying grounded in the gospel reminds me that I can't earn anything. It reminds me that I can't earn anything. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Anything that I may do for the Lord doesn't gain me any standing with him. It doesn't earn me any brownie points. It doesn't somehow kind of even out the score, even out the scale. And that's good news. The good news is that salvation is a free gift. It's not something that can be earned. And that's good news because, let's just be clear about it, even if it could be earned, there's not a chance in a lifetime, in many lifetimes, that we could ever earn it. It's just not possible. Even if we gave it our best, that is what makes the gospel beautiful. That's why it's called grace, friends. It's unmerited favor. And Jesus offers that gift to you right now. And perhaps in this room, you have never received that gift. You have never embraced it for yourself. You've never opened it up and applied it to your own life. You could do that today. I can't earn anything. But second, staying grounded in the gospel reminds me that I owe him everything. I owe him everything. Just earlier in this letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, Paul said, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, I can't earn anything. I do owe him everything. The gift of salvation is free. We often talk about that. But do we remember that it was costly? Jesus sacrificed his precious blood on the cross to purchase our redemption, to, to buy us back from the slave market of sin. And what's my, what's my only reasonable response to that truth? The only reasonable response is to surrender my life, to surrender my all to him. I owe him everything. Third, staying grounded in the gospel reminds me that I'm called to do something. I'm called to do something. 1 Samuel 12, verse 24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done. Do you see it right there? In light of all that he's done, in light of who he is, his goodness, his greatness, in light of the gospel, I'm called to do something, to serve the Lord faithfully, to work for him, to use my gifts and my passions and my talents to further his purposes in this world. It's not optional. I'm called to do something. So I I can't earn anything, but I owe him everything, and I'm called to do something. That's how the good news of Jesus shapes our lives. That's how it, it keeps us making a lasting impact in what we do for him. I must stay grounded in the gospel. You there? I hope that's true for you. All right, back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Back to our key verse. Here's the second principle. I must persevere no matter what comes. 
persevere in my work for the Lord no matter what comes. That's the gist of the word immovable. Don't allow yourself to move. Don't allow anything to move you. That's what Paul's saying. The idea is, is similar to the idea of steadfast, except this word implies testing and trial. It, it just assumes that life will be filled with obstacles and opposition. It, this is remaining steady, remaining strong, even when the circumstances of life are seeking to knock me off my feet. That's what it means to be immovable. And the Apostle Paul, I love it, it, he was a a wonderful example of this. Paul didn't just write things. He wrote things, but he lived what he wrote. And that's why he could rightly say in another place, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. He could say, look at the example of my life. What I'm telling you to do, I'm doing myself. I love that about the Apostle Paul. And um, I'm mindful of a story from Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul is speaking for the very last time with the elders at the church in Ephesus, uh, this church that he had uh, had great affection for. And listen to these words. It'll be on the screen. This is Acts 20, beginning at verse 18. This is what he said. He said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in that every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul recounts the hardships of the past. He anticipates more hardships in the future. But essentially what he says in that paragraph is, I'm immovable. You can't stop me. I will not back down. I'm going to finish the job. I am going to accomplish the work that God has called me to, that he has laid out before me. No one and nothing is going to get me off track. That's what he says. And um, he actually elaborates on this in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11 there, and he recounts for them all of the obstacles, all of the trials, the opposition that he faced in his ministry, beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and constant travel and the dangerous surroundings and nights without sleep and lacking the basic necessities of food and shelter and the pressures that he felt to care for all of these churches and on and on his list goes. And yet in spite of it, Paul urges his first century friends and he urges us today to persevere no matter what comes. Now, perseverance is a key theme in the Bible. It's one of the most common messages if you actually read carefully. And that's because it's so necessary. Um, Hey, I got a newsflash for you. Life's hard. Right? Life is hard. 
I mean, it, it, it's tough to keep the faith right to the end. I mean, how many people do we know that start the race and bail out before the finish line? Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor from the 19th century, he had this to say. He said, do not think that in the moment when you believe in Christ, the conflict is over or you will be bitterly disappointed. It is then that the battle renews itself and every inch of the road swarms with foes. It's a really encouraging quote, isn't it? Between here and heaven, you will always have to fight more or less. There is but a short space between one battle and another in this world. It is a series of skirmishes, even when it does not assume the form of a pitched battle. He that would win heaven must fight for it. Friends, perseverance is the name of the game. And so, you know, I don't know if your mind's going to what some of the obstacles are that can seek to sideline us in our work for the Lord, that can kind of crowd out our desire to honor him with every part of our lives. And I mean, we could, we could make a long list today, things like unconfessed sin and unwarranted criticism from others and broken relationships, physical hardships, financial stress, uh, misplaced priorities, spiritual malaise, just that kind of boredom, the pressure from others to conform and we could add many other things. And these things are, they can so often move us when we are called to be immovable. They can minimize, they can even neutralize our impact for the Lord when we're seeking to bring him glory with our lives. And that's why I love the words of Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses, one's well known to many of us. They call us to persevere no matter what comes. And they, they remind us how we can remain immovable. It says this, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The writer says, like, we need to rid ourselves of anything that could hold us back, any obstacle, any hindrance and we need to fix our eyes on our Savior. He is at the center of the gospel. And we need to run with endurance. We need to stay the course. Colossians 1.11, it adds to the picture. Paul there says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Bottom line is the only way that we can really remain immovable is through God's supernatural enabling. That's the only way it's possible, friends. And this is why that first principle is so important. This is why Paul started with the gospel. Because the only way that we can persevere no matter what comes is if we stay grounded in the gospel. That's where the sure footing comes from. That's when we can remain steadfast and immovable. You see how they're connected? So therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. And now here's the third principle for making a lasting impact in what I do for the Lord. I need to give God my very best every time. Give God my best every time. And this, I see this in that phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
That, that word always is a quantitative description. It, it speaks about the frequency of our work when we're working for the Lord. It needs to be constant. It needs to be at every opportunity. It's without end. No time for slacking. No, no spiritual siestas. No sitting on the sidelines. Everybody engaged. Everybody on the field. Everybody doing their part. All of us, all the time, seeking to be about what God has put before us. That's always. And abounding, abounding's more of a a qualitative description. It, it doesn't speak about the frequency. It speaks about the, the fervency of our work for the Lord. Our work's to be all out. It's to be abundant. It's to exceed the requirements above and beyond, overflowing, more than enough. Do you get the picture? In fact, that, that word abounding, it's a beautiful, beautiful word. And Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter one when he's talking about God's grace. He said, in him we have redemption through the blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, which he abounded upon us in all wisdom and insight. See, God lavished his grace upon us. It, it abounded. It exceeded the requirements. It was above and beyond. That's how he dealt with us on the cross. Bible teacher John MacArthur writes this, he says, because God has so abundantly overdone himself for us who deserve nothing from him, we should determine to overdo ourselves if that were possible in service to him to whom we owe everything. Wow. Does that put it in perspective? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Giving God my very best every time. There's no halfway about it. Always abounding leaves no room for, you know, if it's convenient. Or when I feel like it, maybe then I'll do it. Or if someone twists my arm hard enough, yeah, you can probably get me to do it. Or maybe another time. Or, you know, I, I'm kind of busy right now with my own thing. I got, you know, I got a lot going on. No. Always abounding means I'm all in all the time. I mean, Paul is setting the bar about as high as it can be set. These words, always and abounding, they just, they lay it on the line. They lay it on the line. Now, just in case you think that maybe Paul is um, a little overzealous, like Paul, I mean, you need to get a grip here. You don't, you don't understand my life. You don't know like what it's like to live my life and what you're asking is pretty hard. I just want to let you know um, he's just following the example of Jesus himself. Listen to these words from our Savior. John 9 verse 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Luke 10 verses 2 and 3 say, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. I mean, listen, in some ways, Jesus makes Paul look like a lightweight. I mean, essentially, Jesus is saying, go, like, do God's work while there's still time. Like, daylight is running out. It is going to be night soon, and you will not be able to do it anymore. Make the most of the opportunity. Fulfill your purpose today. 
life passes so quickly. So always abound in the work of the Lord. We've just come through uh, the Winter Olympics. How many of you enjoyed that? Go Canada. Put on a good showing, right? And, you know, hearing the stories of some of the world-class athletes, I mean, it just reminds me of the principle we're talking about right now. You do not get to the top of your field without being all in all the time. And these young men, these young women, they are fervent and they are frequent in their training. Why? Well, because they recognize that their careers are short and their opportunities to compete are limited and there's only so many chances to go for the gold. So they need, they need to be always abounding in their athletic pursuits. And how much more for those of us who are called to live and make a difference for the Lord? Now I want to kind of have a quick little caveat here, all right? Stay with me here. Reasonable rest is necessary and important. But if we err, Paul says, it should be on the side of doing more work for the Lord, not less. Hear me, leisure and relaxation are two great modern idols to which many contemporary Christians seem quite willing to bow down. Now, in proper per, you know, perspective, proper proportion, recreation and diversion, they, they can help. They can restore our energy. They can increase our effectiveness. But they can also easily become ends to themselves. They just demand more and more of our time and our attention, our resources. Listen, more than one believer has relaxed and hobbied himself completely out of the work of the Lord. And I urge us, let's not be those people. Let's not be that people. Let's not go there. Let's heed the words of the Apostle Paul here. Let's always abound in the work of the Lord. People who live by 1 Corinthians 15, 58, they don't need pep talks from pastors. They don't need pleading from exhausted and desperate ministry leaders to step up and to serve God. They're already fired up on their own. They are the kind of people who say like today and every day, it's gonna be an abounding day. Just like show me the need and I am there. I'm all in. This is what my life is about. These are my marching orders. Sign me up. Does that describe you? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. That's stay grounded in the gospel. Be immovable. Persevere no matter what comes. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Give God my very best every time. And finally, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's the fourth principle. I need to trust God with the results and rewards. Trust God with the results and rewards. This is so, so critical in making a lasting impact for the Lord. And Paul acknowledges that our work for the Lord is in a cakewalk. I mean, that word labor in other places, sometimes it's translated toil. Does, do you like the word toil? I don't like the word toil. I mean, it conveys the idea that there can be suffering and there can be sorrow and that there can be strenuous effort, even to the point of weariness. And I know I've been there in ministry. I know many of you have been there in ministry as well. You just, you've poured yourself out in service to him and to others. And, 
And Paul explains here why we should always abound even when it's difficult. He says, it's because we can be sure that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. In other words, he's saying it's never wasted. It's it's not pointless. It's not without effect. And I don't know about you, but I hate to do things in vain. I hate to waste time in that regard. One of the things that bothers me more than anything else is when someone asks me to do something and I begin to devote myself to accomplishing it and then I later discover that either they asked someone else to also do it or they just did it themselves. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I don't want my time and energy to be wasted, to be frittered away, to be in vain. I wanna, I wanna maximize, I want a good return on my investment. And this verse tells me that I don't need to worry about that when it comes to my work for the Lord. I can trust him with the results and the rewards. Every effort I expend to advance God's purposes in this world, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how known in public or how private and quiet and hidden, everything done in God's name and for his glory, it's not in vain. Every person greeted, every car parked, every coffee served, every child loved, every student mentored, every instrument played, every song sung, every meal delivered, every small group led, every Bible lesson taught, every floor swept, every person discipled, every invitation extended, every prayer prayed, every dollar given, every hour spent, all of it not in vain. Friends, we can trust God with the result. Galatians 6, 9 encourages us in this way. It says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. God determines what and he determines when and how and how much. But he unequivocally promises to bring about results based on what we do for him. And he says, we, we plant, God will water, and someone has the privilege to harvest. Now, sometimes we get to harvest what we ourselves planted. Other times we get the privilege to harvest where someone else planted. And sometimes we plant and we never see the harvest happen. But in God's economy, he promises that it'll happen in due course. I just need to remain faithful to his calling. We can trust him with the results. We can also trust him with the rewards. I love Colossians 3, 23 and 24. They say, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How amazing is that? One day, Christ will reward us because of our faithfulness in serving and living for him. And I I don't know what that day is exactly going to look like. I don't know, you know, what the crowns are going to be and all of that kind of thing. But I so long to hear the words said over my life. Well done, good and faithful servant. We can trust God with the rewards. I want you to bow your heads with me right now. Don't stir, don't put your Bible away, just listen. In the moments right after you die, when you're resurrected in the twinkling of an eye and standing before the sovereign and awesome God of the universe, you'll fully and you will finally grasp that this whole world was his and that his purposes were the most important thing going on in it. Now just imagine, 
Just imagine how horrible it would be. Think about the immense regret you would feel to have to admit that during your one shot at this life, your main focus was your agenda, not his. The pursuit of possessions and power and pleasures and and anything else your heart desired. Or, or, imagine how unbelievably grateful you'll be that you abounded in the work of the Lord with your one and only life. You'll be so glad, you'll, you'll feel so free of regret, so humbled by the opportunity that you lived all out and all in for him. The choice is yours, friends. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this verse. Thank you for the high calling it places upon us, the the bar that has been raised for each of us to make a lasting impact in our work for you. God, I pray that that is the desire of our hearts of each person in this room here. God, that we would not just slide through life, but that we would want to make an enduring difference for you. And God, you've shown us how we can do that. We need to stay grounded in the gospel, rooted in the truth of of who you are and what you have done for us. We need to, to persevere when those circumstances seek to get us off track. We need to give you our very best every time. And God, trust you with the results and the rewards. Father, would you speak to our hearts? Would you give us the conviction to do that so on that last day we can stand? Not embarrassed, not ashamed, not filled with regret, but grateful and humbled because you saw fit to use us. May it be so, God. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.